This podcast is recorded on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the First Nations and elders of this country and we join their calls for justice. All right. Well, yes, let me get this right. So are you senator-elect? Is that is that your technical term? I believe term? so. I believe. Okay. I've just been saying the next Green Senator for Victoria because okay. I don't know if there's a technical term or not. <laughs> right, let's go Who's next Green Senator? Yes. Uh, we'll get into the nitty-gritty. And congratulations, of course, Steph. But we need to address the big issue on everyone's lips. The fact that you will be another Greens MP at the federal level who has a double-barreled surname. We got Max Chandler, we got Penny Ormond Payne, we got Sarah Hansen Young, we got Elizabeth Watson Brown, and we now have Steph Hodgins May. Explain yourself, please. Yeah, look, proud of my double-barreled heritage. <laughs> um, I, I saw a funny tweet that you know there's a very strong faction occurring. We only need one more double-barreled surname to get the numbers in party yes. rooms. So um, I'm on the lookout for double-barreled named candidates for the next federal election. So do get in touch. Um, yeah, no, I I think bring it on. Why not? I wasn't. I'm going to say though, I'm like you. I'm from a country town, and yeah. there was a bit of. Um, like I used to be a bit kind of embarrassed about it because I was born out of wedlock and uh, in a fairly conservative country town that wasn't um, really like looked upon all that well. Like it feels that was a long time ago and things have changed so much since then. But I remember when they'd read out my name, I would often just like, or just give them one of my surnames. So I didn't get the double. But um, mm. now I've found my people in the Greens party room. <laughs> in the Greens. <laughs> Where all the bastard children go. No, That's um, right. <laughs> Because, it, I mean, obviously, okay, so so some people use it as, a, as an insult or a little dig at the Greens or whatever, like we're all hoity-toity and we're from the ruling class. And obviously there is some kind of fancy ruling class heritage to some people using double-barreled surnames. But then I thought, yeah, well, also I've heard of people whose mother was particularly, you know, a committed feminist and so didn't mm. reject the idea of taking on her husband's name when she got married or, yeah, complicated family structures or it's a yeah. child's choice to represent both their parents' names in their, in their surname. So it's actually fine and cool and yeah. people who don't do it are stupid. Yeah. The only part, the time that it gets most complicated is when you have children and you are one of those feminists who yes. also um, wants to share the names around. So uh, we have come up with another concoction for our kids um, where Ooh. I've used my mum's first name. So we've just had a baby girl called Vivian and that was my mum's name. So we snuck it in there and went with a combination of my partner's surname and my name, Simich May, for the kids. But it really, yeah, it's a, it's a big political question for <laughs> aspiring parents with double-barreled surnames. <laughs> yes, all the big issues here at Serious Danger. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, dear me, imagine being excited to see Adam Band. What is wrong with these people? Talk about the Greens, that, funny, that bunch of idiots. If you want the dole for life, free marijuana, vote Greens. They want to destroy the social fabric of society. We're stuck with the hosts of Chapo Shithouse podcasts. Serious Danger Australia. Let's get into it. This is a podcast about Greens politics in Australia, and uh, it's not an official Greens Party podcast, as you well know. It is produced by Michael the Griff Griffin and made possible with the help of the Green Institute. I'm Tom Ballard. Huge thanks to Lila RPG for filling in for me for last week. I was at the Meredith Music Festival getting lots of important things done, so I appreciate uh, them stepping in and co-hosting. Emerald is away this week. It is her turn to take a bit of a break as we move towards Christmas, and I'm delighted to be joined by a very special guest co-host, the Victorian Greens, the next Victorian Greens senator elect, or whatever the hell, Steph Hutchins May. Hurrah! Right, of applause. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks for being here, first of all, for hosting the show. And congratulations on your pre selection process. Janet Rice is stepping down next year. You are going to be taking over the reins as Victorian Greens senator. How are you feeling? 
oh, bloody excited, but also pretty daunted about what's ahead. Like I was trying to think back to my first press conference as a Greens candidate. Um, in, I think it was in 2000 and uh, it have been before the election. So 2013, I think it was. And mm. I just remember thinking, what the hell am I doing? Like all these cameras flick on in my face. I'm like, I'm not a politician. I don't know this stuff. Like, and my <laughs> first interview was actually the hardest one I've ever done. And they did this pop quiz on Ballarat um, statistics. And I just happened to have been on the ABN website that morning, that, that morning and got through it. But um, you don't join the Greens thinking you're going to get elected. Like that's just <laughs> not, <laughs> not what you do. You go to the Labor Party if you sell your soul. And um, so I still, it hasn't really sunk in like I people see me and they say congratulations give me a hug and I was like oh and no, I had a baby a year ago what oh yeah I'm gonna be oh, a senator yeah. so like <laughs> absolutely thrilled um a bit terrified like I know it's a huge job I've worked in the senate before I've got a couple of young kids but um yeah ultimately just like bloody proud and really like thankful to the membership for giving me this opportunity which I'm under no illusions as to what a huge responsibility it is, um, how many expectations there are of me, and um, I really hope that I'll do a bloody good job. Oh, I reckon you're going to do okay, mate. I think you're going to do just fine. <laughs> Thanks, <mate. laughs> of course, you've been a guest on Serious Danger before. You attended our 100th episode live show, which, uh, which you know, I think is what tipped you over awesome. with the membership um, <laughs> and won you the vote. But people are most familiar as a three-time candidate in the lower house, probably for the seat that used to be called Melbourne Ports, that then became McNamara. Came so close in 2022, lost by less than 2,000 votes, uh, but that seat is now held by Labor's Josh Burns, who we might be discussing a little bit later on today. So you've obviously got that track. Perhaps lots of people might assume, oh, surely Steph will run again at the next election and try and go for McNamara. What made you want to put your hand up for the, the Senate instead? Yeah, awesome. Just got to go back to 2022. We lost by 330 votes. If we had picked up an extra 330 of Labor's Oh, then you would have votes. leaped. Oh. Yes, yes. Yeah. So like it just tiny, like and in okay, 2016 right. it was less than 500 votes. So I reckon I'm the, like the most close failed candidate twice um, maybe in Australian <laughs> political history. Uh, wow. Look, I love running in McNamara. I love running campaigns uh you know you get these insights into the community these relationships these energy this drama as well um and that's been a huge privilege but I also saw an opportunity to really build on that experience that I've got in the lower house and to roll that out across the state um I'm from country Victoria so I have really great connections with the regions as well as the inner city and I just think that there's a really important role for our next green senator to be doing that obviously the parliamentary heavy hitting and the the policy work in the senate but Mm. also to be doing that party building that I believe really needs to happen in the lower house and we need to get that mantle back from Queensland Greens and, you know, build our lower house representation. Um, but, yeah, and I think this opportunity will be great. I'll still be working very hard in McNamara to get us over the line um, at the next election as well as in other lower house seats. But, um, yeah, it's one of those things in politics that I've had three cracks at McNamara and mm. I've um, managed to, I think, do some pretty amazing things with with my team. It's very much a team effort and they're all excited about the next opportunities that lay ahead when Janet hands over the reins next year. Yes. Yeah. I didn't know you'd worked in the so, Senate before. Had you been, have yeah. you been a staffer for folks or you just done research yeah. stuff? Yeah. So I worked with Richard Di Natale uh, oh, right. in the Senate, so mostly on medicinal cannabis, uh, which was one of the rare wins that we got. Uh, I still need to take it further, of course. Uh, drug law yeah. reform, dying with dignity, gambling. Um, and, yeah, so I, I know the hours. I know how... Um, hard they work up there and um, what sort of how demanding the role is. But also I think that 
yeah, I've got a bit of experience with those policy mechanisms. So hopefully my, my goal is to hit the ground running on the parliamentary side so then I can really um, be working on the lower house campaigning that we need to build on before the next federal election simultaneously. Yeah, right. So if people aren't aware, obviously you'll take over once Janet retires, but then at the next yeah. election you'll be up for election, right? You, you then have to be re-elected as the Victorian right. Green Senator at the next election, whatever that might be. Exactly. So just, just election election bonanza for Steph Hutchins, mate. Love you love elections. it. You can't get it out. I do. I was like, there's no no elections this year um, in Victoria, so why not do a pre-selection? Yeah. You know? <laughs> just, just to keep your head in the game. Exactly. And just briefly, again, for, for people who aren't, uh, you know, Labor Hacks or Greens members necessarily, they'll just start across all the details. Briefly, what, what is involved in a pre-selection process for a position like this? Yeah. You have to do a whole bunch of meat the candidates, I tend to yes. a few of them. Well, you're yes. fielding 40 questions from members. What, what, what kind of stuff do you have to do to, to be successful? Yeah. yeah, yeah, all of that, all of those things. And oh, it was amazing how nervous I was before the Meet the Candidates. You know, I've done media and I've done this podcast, you know, I'm a bit nervous, but my hands actually <laughs> went numb with nerves uh, because, yeah, like you're being judged by your peers who you respect so deeply and you're up against your colleagues that you respect so um, so immensely. So, um Pre-selection is a top secret in the Greens. Um, maybe there's, I think, let's see whether that shifts in the future. But mm. really it is just trying to talk to and listen to as many Victorian Greens members as you can right across the state. Uh, and that is a really useful exercise in and of itself, something that I really want to continue to do when I um, formally take on the job. But, uh, yeah, just understanding what they want from a senator and letting them know what you offer and uh, ultimately um, asking for the number one vote. And I was yeah, really happy with the result that came through, uh, but d- definitely didn't take a single vote, vote for granted and was sort of on the phone up until 9.30pm the night before voting closed. And it was an almighty relief. I was at my son's orientation uh, the next morning and when it, like the clock ticked over to 10 o'clock when we got the results and I was on the, I think, the verge of crying and uh, I headed out and found a nice log, as us Greens do, and sat on the log and then a me- message came through from my scrutineer saying, you don't need to ask for your job back at Greenpeace, you, um, Senator. <laughs> Senator yeah, Steph. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it was a very thrilling moment, a um, lot of campaigning, a lot of years of preparation um, going into it. But as I said, you don't join the party to get elected, so when you do, it's just a Absolute bloody bonus. <laughs> lovely surprise. <laughs> yes. What are you most terrified about uh, stepping into the, the, the shoes of uh, this particular role? What are you scared about? I mean, you yeah. have to hang out with yeah. other senators. We profiled That's Victorian scary. Senator Ralph Babbitt from the United yes. Australia Party at our live show. He's amazing. You'll get to probably meet him and hang out with yeah, him. Can't wait. What are you yep. most scared about stepping into the uh, the chamber? Mm. I just really just hope I want to st- stay true to myself and not be, you know, there's this risk of being pulled in a million directions and Mm. I really want to stay grounded in why I joined the Greens and why I nominated for the Greens. And um, I think when there's daily media cycles as quick and, you know, quick as it is and when there are competing demands and expectations from right across the political spectrum, like I, I just really want to focus on between now and starting really considering how I'm going to stay anchored to um, what it is that I'm coming in to do and what I want to achieve. And, um, yeah, obviously, like, Twitter's a bit scary, still figuring out X is a bit scary. <laughs> like, oh, like, no, it's dead. Don't worry about that. It's That's dead, over. yeah, get rid of that. Um, no, and less, like, family? 
balancing those um, expectations. Oh, that's over. Being, no, that's overrated. That's done. That's done. Uh, what else? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just want to do a good job. Like we've got, we're down to one green senator in Victoria at the moment mm. and that's a hell of a lot of responsibility and I just want to make people proud and I want to make my kids proud future. I want to get some runs on the board. I want to end coal and gas in this country and yeah. there's a lot I want to do and I keep getting told you've got to be patient and I'm not a very patient person. So I um, could <laughs> <laughs> work on some of that zen um yeah but That's, ultimately I mean, you say that but then you've been your experience yeah, of true. running as a candidate and your ability to um keep showing up and keep fighting the good yeah. fight and getting so close to McNamara is is evidence that you are committed at least you may you may get frustrated yeah. with your own impatience at the lack of progress but you are clearly committed and I think that's yeah. certainly what would have impressed a lot of um Victorian Greens members I think and, and may well have persistent swung too. Yeah, yeah persistent. persistent my dad would call me resolute um but yeah <laughs> annoying yeah. some would say annoying you know, like oh, a real <laughs> just a thorn in the side uh yeah I just I've worked in wonderful other like other wonderful organizations in the environmental movement and they do phenomenal work. But ultimately, like every time I come back to being about the politics and mm. I was actually in Vanuatu recently um, on a ship tour that I was coordinating with Rainbow Warrior and speaking to Ralph Regan Vanu, who's one of the world's most incredible climate leaders. Um, he's a climate minister of Vanuatu and I was like, what can we do? What's the most important thing we can do? And he said, You've got to change the government, like your government it's terrible. Both the major parties are terrible. So don't worry about telling us and helping us to figure out what to do. Like it's back home. And that was around the same time that I was, um, you know, the pre-selection not long before the pre-selection opened. And I was like, yeah, you're right. We've just got to go hard. We've got to be in there. We've got to replace them. And, um, that's the goal. And we've got set balance of power in the Senate. So time to, time to bring it on in the lower house as well. Hell yeah. Yeah. All right, let's crack into this week's episode. We're going to be checking yeah. in on all things COP28, uh, the climate action or no action or whether anything was achieved there, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I also want to discuss with you, Steph, the challenges of fighting against Israel's occupation of Palestine. You've got some pretty interesting experience on this front and there's been some developments this week as the horror show mm-hmm. in Gaza continues. So we will get to that in a moment. Yep. I want to say a huge thank you to Michael and B. Uh, the two patrons who have joined the patron family this week. Thank you very much. You go to patreon.com forward slash serious danger AU. You get bonus content every fortnight for as little as just $3 a month. We now have more than 720 patrons of serious danger, which is crazy and very nice. So thank you. I need to do that. Uh, the latest Patreon episode is us taking on chapter two of Patty Manning's inside the greens. Have you read inside the greens, Steph? Have you, have you read have. that 400 page? It's the page? manual, isn't yeah? it? <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Wow. Great. Okay, good. We're reading it slowly on the podcast. It's going to take us about five years, but um, there's a lot of interesting gold in there. Um, Big shout out to people who've made some merch orders. We have some leftover merch, still some t-shirts and stickers to go. You may not be receiving your merch until early 2024. And final plug, I recently took part in a panel at the Love and Rage Festival in Nam, Melbourne. It was a fantastic panel hosted by Jacobin Australia alongside Daniel Lopez, Jeff Sparrow, Colleen Bolger and Tim Kennedy the National Secretary of the United Workers' Union. Really interesting conversation on what not to do, what the left shouldn't do moving forward, given the current political circumstances. I gave my best attempt to try to cover up what's happening in Queensland and why I'm attracted to the Greens and why I'm a democratic socialist. And you can watch that whole panel for free. We'll put the link to the YouTube video in the show notes. Right. Sorry, Steph, that was very boring admin. But no, no, no. Oh, good. I need to sign up to Patreon. That's a good reminder. <laughs> you get bonus content. You, you can listen back to Inside the Greens. Yes. Like, oh, good. It's a bit of free time between now and April. <laughs> what do we want? When do we want it? Now, now. What? Hope you can see. I see.
happening, people? I see. Hope you can see. I see. Why can't you see? I see. Hope you can see. The climate's changing. Sing it louder. All right, let's talk COP28, the 28th meeting of the Conference of the Parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Very catchy title. Yes. Came to an end this week. Very brief overview before we jump, in, jump into actually what was achieved or wasn't. Uh, it was being held in Dubai this year, the Petro State of the United Arab Emirates. Under the terms of the Paris Agreement of 2015, by 2023, the world had to do a whole stock take of all the efforts that we'd been getting up to since Paris uh, and how we're going when it comes to limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees and we need to reset them if they're not on track. And I guess the final text of this COP is the end of that stock take process. So a lot of eyes on COP28. The COP president was Dr. Sultan Ahmed Al-Jabir, the head of the UAE's state oil company, Adnoc, <laughs> which some might argue is a red flag that he might have a bit of skin of the game on the old fossil fuels question. And there was quite a bit of reporting around this dude and generally the presence of fossil fuels at COP28 that were quite concerning. Days before the talks began, the BBC reported it had seen leaked documents of talking points suggesting that Adnoc planned to use the COP to pursue new deals. Um, Al Jabbar denied that he'd ever seen those plans, but not a great, not a great sign of using <laughs> COP as a business opportunity to expand your fossil fuel operations. Uh, a couple of weeks ago at the start of December, I think this was, there was a story about the president, Sultan al-Jabir, uh, claiming that... There's no science uh, out there or no scenario out there that says that the phase out of fossil fuel is what's going to achieve 1.5 degrees Celsius. Al-Jabir also said... Show me a roadmap for a phase out of fossil fuel that will allow for sustainable socio-economic development. Unless you want to take the world back into caves. Unless you want to take the world back into caves. Mm -hmm. There were 196 countries at COP represented across 100,000 delegates, including 2,456 fossil fuel lobbyists, which is the largest ever contingent of fossil fuel lobbyists. So congratulations to everyone involved. What a record. And during the talks, a letter from the cartel of oil-producing nations, OPEC, leaked. The letter urged its member states to not allow the mention of fossil fuels in the final text. <laughs> lot going on there. Uh, you're obviously really passionate about this. I know climate justice is very close to your heart, uh, Steph, and you have a background in environmental law and also working extensively throughout the Pacific on climate questions. I mean, what's your thoughts on COP28? Will you follow it really closely and, and climate nerding out? What's your read on this whole thing? Just absolute utter horseshit, really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like this weird dystopian movie where we're seeing our climate and our fossil fuel phase out being negotiated in a petro state. Like, yeah. come on, come on. Come on. Um, look, I didn't go into it with particularly high expectations. We did get at the last COP um, the the establishment of a loss and damage finance mechanism was seen as something that, you know, could take us in the right direction. But in this particular COP, um, I have a number of colleagues from the Pacific Islands that were there negotiating and they weren't even in the room when the gavel was dropped and the final text was agreed to. They oh, were God. still reviewing the most recent version and um, caucusing amongst themselves, these small island developing nations, mm -hmm. and as they were re-entering the room, bang, agreement done. And this is an agreement, you know, that impacts their futures, their, their livelihoods, their island homes um, above all else, and they weren't included. Like just appalling, appalling. Mm -hmm. And um, really 
there where my litmus test is and we need we know we need to stay as close to 1.5 as possible and there's anything like short of a fossil fuel phase out is not worth the paper that it's written on and you know he's just Bowen he's just the king of grandstanding just Mm. time and time again goes in says the right thing and we hear from our colleagues behind closed doors that they're strong arming and negotiators in these regions that are pushing for more progressive um climate policies and so it's like talking out one side of their mouths and doing something else entirely so I yeah I'm I'm not surprised I'm disappointed Mm. I think cumulatively there was a commitment of about 300 million towards loss and damage and when you compare that with the 360 billion towards AUKUS or whatever it was 382 billion towards AUKUS you just look 300 million for global loss and damage of these Mm. um, island nations and these low-lying developing countries that are going underwater, 300 million, and then you look at 382 billion for a few subs, like just the priorities are so incredibly out of whack. What about you, Tom? <laughs> it's so sinister, isn't it? Because now because, I mean, obviously, I mean, again, this this LGBA guy was constantly saying we respect the science, we love the science, we're all mm. about the science, 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 right? So the, the conversation has at least moved to a position in which outright climate denial is unacceptable, right? You're not yeah. allowed to do that. Yeah. So then they have to do all this much sneakier approach to this idea yeah. where, no, we're all on the same team. We all want to get to net zero. We all care about climate change. Yeah. While in the in the in the in the background, clearly lobbying to avoid any kind of language, you know, as strong as language can be, but any kind of serious yeah. language that would actually identify fossil fuels as the problem and actually cut off any kind of progress on those fronts. So you actually have to yeah, it's it's worse almost. It's yeah. like I'd rather people come out and say, I don't believe in climate change, this is bullshit, I just want to make money. Yeah. At least that'd be honest. Totally. <laughs> I think it was um, Polly Hemming who I fangirl over that said something like the, the biggest difference between the Libs and the Labor's climate policies is the rhetoric. Like yes. the, at least the Libs were honest about not wanting to do anything, whereas the Labor Party say all the right things but then the policy is just basically paramount to what the Libs offered up and mm. and. I agree, like just be honest. And even seeing I think what you'll see shaping up to be the kind of big focus of the environment movement um, over the next few years will be Australia's election commitment to co-host COP31 with the Pacific Islands. And and here we go again, just an opportunity to grandstand and they're going across to the Pacific Island Forum and schmoozing with Pacific Island leaders and saying we want to co-host this this future cop with you and when then those leaders are saying look well what what are you going to do like are you going to commit to the fossil fuel phase out are you going to say no new coal and gas you're going to end subsidies do you want to co-host the cop with us (laughs) we can have a cool party we can have a nice function and it's not a, it's not a policy. It's like it's a branding exercise, and um, there is a pretty reasonable chance that COP thirty one will be co hosted, but will, will be co hosted with Australia and at least some Pacific Island nations. So this is a really important opportunity for um, that those extraordinary leaders right across the region to be getting those commitments out of Australia before signing up, because the Labor government's got a track record of just bullshit on yeah. climate meaningful climate action and yeah, bring it on in McNamara at the next election. <laughs> if we if Australia hosts COP thirty one, I reckon we mm. can beat that record of fossil fuel lobbyists. I really believe in us. <laughs> I think that we can like blow them out of the water. We can we can defeat the UAE in terms of fossil yeah. fuel representation in this country. I, well we're a bigger petro state than, than, than the UAE. So yeah, I feel like that's just an, um a natural conclusion. But I don't know there's a there's a goal for us. Well, Labor might have been embarrassing us on the uh, global stage, but don't worry. The coalition was also there at uh, COP twenty eight. <laughs> and before we, we'll get to the final text in a moment, but I did think this moment from the uh, the conference is worth uh, 
dwelling on. The Australian Federal Coalition has declared its support for a global pledge to triple nuclear energy at the COP28 <laughs> conference, but opposed a proposal to triple renewable energy output. Speaking on the sidelines of the Dubai event, the opposition's climate change and energy spokesperson, Ted O'Brien, said any future coalition government would sign on to the nuclear pledge. Roughly 11% of countries at the talks, mostly nations that already have a domestic nuclear energy industry, oh, that's weird, back to the nuclear pledge, which prompted O'Brien to declare COP28 will be known as the nuclear cop. <laughs> God, I'm obviously not consuming enough right-wing meat. I have not seen that. <laughs> <laughs> this is from a little while ago. I mean, who cares what Ted O'Brien oh. says about anything, but interesting that they're out there and, uh, and getting involved. He rejected a pledge signed by more than 120 countries, including Australia, to triple renewable energy and double the rate of energy efficiency by 2030. And this is from um, uh, Schwartz Media. Experts warn it would take 10 to 15 years to get a nuclear reactor approved, up and running, meaning the technology would be unable to address short-term energy supply challenges from the imminent closure of aging coal-fired power. Now, in the morning we're recording this, we also had this report from IEMO about the challenges, about the transition and how much energy we need and the, the increased investment required to get us to this transition really quickly, which is kind of in line with those same kind of goals, right, of like tripling our renewable energy output and, uh, and that kind of thing. And clearly the coalition think they're onto a winner when it comes to nuclear power and have been some polls indicating that some public opinion might be shifting on that front. But what's going on here? Was this nuclear cop and why do the coalition think they're onto a winner when it comes to nuclear power? Is it just like a, they just want to be contrarian? They just want to differentiate on any possible policy that they can. Yeah. Uh, you know, I it's just so tired. Why? Where was their big nuclear push when they're in power? Like, yeah, weird that, that didn't it's come up just, at all. Yeah, where they can where can they find a point of difference? And uh, I don't know. I just I just find them completely irrelevant in today's political system and it's just seeing the Greens time and time again. You know, maybe we'll chat about the nature repair bill and the water trigger bill. The libs have just media releasing themselves into oblivion. Mm. I hadn't even seen that headline and now thanks for bringing it up on my Friday morning before the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, No, 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 no. all all good. But, yeah, just false solutions. We've seen it before and it's tired and they'll probably drum it out again the next election and the one after, but yeah. Well, I mean, again, I mean, the fantasy of setting up a nuclear power industry in Australia quickly to resolve anything like the price of electricity now or whatever is is obviously bullshit. But obviously, yeah. but clearly, there is political advantage in keying into people's concerns about the affordability of electricity mm. as we go through this mm. cost of living crisis. As the energy companies and gas companies, particularly, are making out like yeah. fucking bandits, making super profits yeah. um, over the current global. Uh, conditions and but nuclear and is so much prices. more expensive. It's so, so much more much expensive. More expensive. Like it's <laughs> and it takes bloody like a long time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know why they hate renewables. I don't know why I hate the planet. Why they had a hate our future. Why they hate us. Um, <laughs> but it ain't working for them. Like it's just kind of restock and go. Hang on. Why is our vote not increasing? And it's. Just science, you know what, mate. what'll win us back the teal seats <laughs> will be nuclear energy. <laughs> they, they're teal; they like green things. They'll, they'll be fine. Yeah, it's true. Well, yeah, Simon Holmes Court recently came out, didn't he? Sort of saying we shouldn't be condemning um, nuclear to the oh waste really? Thing. Yeah, oh, no, yeah. Come on, Simon, come on, mate. No, I know this. Let it. Let it, let it go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what did the countries at COP28 agree to? In the final text, the countries agreed to transition to transition away from fossil fuels, 
without any commitment to phase them out or even phase them down. I don't, I don't really know the difference between a phase out and a phase down really, but uh, both of those wordings were rejected. Specifically, the pledge was to transition from fossil fuels and energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. Now, this is apparently the first time the final text of a COP has mentioned fossil fuels, so people got quite excited about that. Um, the world did agree to triple renewable energy capacity globally and double the global average annual rate of energy efficiency improvements by 2030. So the thing that the coalition rejected, most um, countries agreed to and COP28 has endorsed. Um, should we be excited or relieved by this at all, Steph? Is this anywhere near enough to keep the world to 1.5 degrees warming? What do you think? Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, great like, to have you here with your nothing, expertise. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> there's just nothing orderly or equitable about the climate crisis as it's unfolding right now. And mm. to this, this weak language, like I, as I said, I was in Vanuatu recently and I went to this climate impacted uh, island of called Eromongo. And you see, they they were hit by um, two cyclones within days of each other this year, earlier this year, and you see photos of at the start of the year and now and now of what how much the coastline has completely shifted, like where they would gather for um, ceremonies and where the schools are, like it's completely disappeared. The earth underneath those places has completely disappeared, and mm. you just think, like. It's, it's not, we don't have the patience, we don't have the time for orderly, like orderly transition. It's just got to happen bloody quickly. And to not be able to like commit to the end of subsidizing fossil fuel projects and a like a phase out is just, as I said, completely weak. To not have the Pacific Island nations who are the leaders on this in the room when it was agreed is just a disgrace. Uh, and I don't know. I just I, I do have faith in multilateral negotiations because it's all they're all we've got really, mm. uh, and they do bring people together to talk and to listen, and we see some of the right sort of motions being made. But it's it's just piss weak. Piss weak. I, yeah. I was uh, listening to a podcast with one expert who was sort of saying, yeah, orderly transition is fundamentally about price stability, right? So yeah. if you're a petro state or you, and you want to make sure that the yeah. price of oil remains stable because that can't suddenly drop off a cliff because obviously mm -hmm. if you're a petro state, your entire yeah. <laughs> nation is basically propped up by the price of these fossil fuels, yeah. then yes, you are extremely reliant on people still needing those fossil fuels mm -hmm. at a steady price for a long period of time. And yeah. unless you can bring something else online slowly over a long period of time, you want to maintain the price of those fossil fuels. So yeah, you get this language and then you need to get someone who's not going to tell you bullshit to say, okay, this is what yeah. they actually mean by this um, yeah. to read through the lines. Yeah. Um, some other depressing little insights into the process throughout the uh, conference. A statement included in the draft text that global emissions should peak by 2025 was mm. dropped after opposition mm. from China and some other countries. So, mm. yes, we can't be peaking anytime soon. Mm. At the urging of oil producers such as Saudi Arabia, the final text also included language backed by fossil fuel interests such as carbon capture and utilisation and storage and transition fuels, which can cover yeah natural gas. So again, we yeah. see gas being placed in the category of a transition fuel, uh, whereas people say, no, this is a fossil fuel. Fossil fuel. It still yep. produces methane and CO2 and will continue yep. to cook the planet. You crazy weirdos. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. You can't just quote the science and then ignore the science. Like that's ultimately what it boils down to. 
They love the sides, Steph. They it's love, all in accordance with the sides. What sides? Yeah. Mm, just the sides that allows us to keep making money. Many experts yeah. have slammed the cavernous loopholes in this agreement that will allow countries to continue opening new fossil fuel projects. And look, much was made with the, from this mm-hmm. quote from Chris Bowen, sort of saying mm-hmm. fossil fuels has to end in order for us to maintain warming. And what did he say? At some some day, at some point, they will have to end in the future, question mark. Mm. While still his government is fully committed to opening new fossil fuel projects yep. in Australia and yep. refusing to acknowledge the emissions impact of the fossil fuels that we export to other countries in scope three emissions. Again, an absolute yep. joke. We've talked about a lot yep. on this podcast, the idea that we can ship fossil fuels to other countries, they can burn them off and we don't care or have any responsibility when it comes to yep. the carbon impact of those exports. Yeah, look, we've campaigned in the past to get a price, um, like a levy on each ton of coal that's exported to go, like you can never cover the costs once, like of the climate crisis, but to try and, you know, draw together a fund to be able to pay for some of the natural disasters or those climate-induced disasters that are happening. Mm -hmm. And like there's just not a chance, not a chance in hell we're going to get any progress on this imminently. Like we've seen absolutely no slowing down of new fossil fuel projects in this country. I think Tanya Plibersex approved at least new five new fossil fuel projects since being in power. And mm-hmm. um, I just I just don't know what it's going to take, Tom, but well, I do. It's getting more Greens elected. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and people chaining themselves to stuff. I mean, there's a story again this morning about this Darwin Harbour middle arm expansion plan. Um, uh, This internal government documents reveal the federal government is considering paying for a carbon capture and storage facility near Darwin Harbour as part of a development uh, that will unlock fossil fuel expansions and cost more than $3.5 billion. So this is about getting the fracked gas from the Beedaloo Basin uh, to be able to export that out to the world and to justify that project by having carbon capture and storage, which as we know, is a joke, it is a bullshit, it is a way, it is a form of greenwashing to allow the fossil fuel industry to keep expanding their operations um, and to pretend as if those emissions are not going to escape into the atmosphere and continue warming the planet. But we know that that yeah. is what is going to happen. Yep, certainly is. <laughs> this is a very depressing episode. I know, I know. <laughs> Just like nodding and smiling, yep, that's it, mate. But as, as you say, I mean, the moral leadership and clarity from leaders from yeah. the Pacific, I mean, that yeah. was really clear at COP28 and listening yeah. to them would be a really good idea, particularly if you want to host a COP with them in the future. Yeah. Um, Samoan Cedric Schuster, chair of the Alliance of Small Island States, uh, commented on an earlier draft of the text, we will not sign our death certificate. We cannot sign mm. onto text that does not have strong commitments mm. on phasing out fossil fuels. So I, as you say, if, you, if they were left out of the the process in terms of yeah. the final text. I'm not sure they didn't even get to sign on to it at the end. Is that right? Um, they they weren't in the room when it was yeah. agreed to. Like some of them were still making their way into the room. But look, Pacific Island leaders that I know and the civil society organisations that I've worked alongside aren't just sitting around waiting for the next COP. They are finding so many other ways to take action. And um, one of the um, cases that I had the privilege of working on before um running in the Senate pre-selection was working alongside Pacific Island nations in um, their bid to get the International Court of Justice to, for the first time in history, consider the impacts of climate change on human rights. So really going to the climate justice angle. And countries have tried this in the past. Um, Palau tried it uh, many years ago and were strong-armed out of proceeding by the US and probably Australia as well um, because they didn't want this going to the the International Court of Justice. And so this campaign started in a classroom in Vanuatu um, several years ago and uh, worked alongside these 
predominantly students who came up with the idea, these law students, and who then um, over the last couple of years built a coalition of nations globally to support the vote in the United Nations that happened in March this year. And so for the first time in history, we got um, a consensus vote at the United Nations for this this question of the impacts of climate change on human rights to go to the International Court of Justice who are now um, here who will submission to due uh, mid-January. As far as I'm aware, um, Australia hasn't committed to making a strong submission. We've you know, been lobbying them very hard to do so and they haven't agreed to it. Um, but it was phenomenal that Vanuatu had, I suppose, the leadership to go ahead with this, knowing that countries like Australia is Vanuatu's largest aid donor. And uh, you can imagine the pressure that they're experiencing not to proceed with these other sorts of um, means like climate litigation to get outcomes and to protect their homes and to protect their futures. Uh, so submissions, I think, will be received into mid-January. Then the court will deliver an advisory opinion. And it's, whilst it's not binding, it will have really significant flow-on effects to domestic jurisdictions who are considering cases such as, uh, I don't know if you remember Sharma versus the Environment Minister, where the formidable Anjali Sharma and another group of students um, sued the Climate Minister, the Environment Minister, Susan Lee, and said, you owe us a duty of care. And they won first, first off and then on appeal, the, the minister appealed saying, no, in fact, we don't owe a duty of care to young people and they won on appeal. But cases like that could be significantly um, altered when, if, even when we have this strong legal opinion from the world's highest court. So, like, I just, I just cannot um, overemphasise how much leadership's coming out of that region and how far ahead they are. They, the Pacific Island nations were the first ones to talk about loss and damage funding and they've led that discussion through to getting, you know, at least the establishment of a facility and there's a long way to go in getting it to be equitable and um, driven by the communities that, that need those funds more than anyone. But, uh, yeah, don't think that we're just going to be sitting around twiddling thumbs until the next election. Climate litigation, um, obviously, um, diplomacy, obviously direct action, all are going to play a really critical role because, you know, we've got nothing to lose at this point. God, every now and again I'm reminded of that hilarious joke from Peter Dutton about Pacific Islanders having water lapping at their door and thinking being caught at that hot mic. That's his mic. That's his mic. Yeah, I tell you, we had a bit of that uh, up in Port Moresby. Oh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it was a good meeting. It was a good meeting. When was it? It was at Moresby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The deal was in anything. You're about to be going to have water lapping at your house. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, you fucking. Which is almost like, like an admission of the fact that climate change is real and is seriously an existential threat to these nations. You pass it off as a joke at this, at yeah. this conference. And now yeah. you want to be the prime minister and you don't give a shit about climate change at yeah. all. You don't give a fuck about these people. Anyway. And it's their key foreign policy priority is a specific step up. And, um, yeah. yeah, where's the where's the action behind those words? And Yes. Yeah. Um, we were talking a bit before about Australia hosting the next COP. Is there any argument mm. to say that the Greens or, you know, the environmental movement should be in favour of Australia and Pacific Islands hosting COP? because of the potential political pressure it might place on, on Australia and, the you know, from the Pacific Islands' point of view, to actually take serious steps to address the fossil fuel industry? I mean, I assume as a host nation mm. there is greater scrutiny on your actions, although it was just hold of the UAE, so who the hell knows? Mm. But at least at least there is some form of international political pressure to examine one's own role in the climate crisis mm. and that could actually increase political pressure on Australia to do more. I just think in order to host it, they need to sort of fess up a bit now about what they're planning to do. And right. now's the point of leverage when we can say, you know, what 
what are you going to put on the table and why do you deserve to co-host co-host a future cop with the pacific islands who are the leaders in this area and look i'll always be guided by them they're for me the moral compass on issues of climate justice and um, climate mitigation um so certainly we'll be looking to them to see whether they think it is um in the best interests of our future and their their survival but as we've just seen in the most recent cop like just weasel words and opportunity to grandstand so often um, prevails. And so it's now, it's um, before the government gets the, the Australian government gets the bid. I think that we need to keep the pressure on and say, show us, show us your hand because yeah, what's to say they're not just going to come up with some other sort of greenwashing, carbon offsetting crap um, as their kind of show pony for the next, if if we do get COP31. There could be some funny, awkward press conferences if we're co-hosting with the Pacific Island leaders. And Australia's like, we're great, we're doing fantastic, and then a Pacific Island leader's like, our main issue is Australia. Yes, <laughs> investment yes. in the fossil fuel industry. <laughs> they should stop doing that because we're about to drown under the seas thanks to the climate well, yeah, change that's there's... fueled by the fossil fuel industry. I, I would like to watch that press conference. I would, <laughs> I would tune in for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, finally, on the climate front, before we move on, on the domestic mm. climate. Front. Again, a bunch of stuff about the energy market came out today and that middle arm ex- expansion, lots to discuss. But I also wanted to check in on the latest when it comes to Labor's mm. nature repair bill. We went pretty deep on the shortcomings of this legislation back in episode 80. Uh, Emerald very kindly went deep on the nature repair bill. That episode's called Living Rent Freeze. That was released back in June if people want to have a listen to it. Uh, this is the Green Wall Street <laughs> piece of legislation. Let's create certificates that people can get, landowners can get for doing nice stuff to nature. You get a certificate that you can then create and sell them on the markets, right? It's a wonderful uh, way to incentivize and invest in the repair of nature, Green Wall Street. Uh, wonderful offsets for environmental destruction, great stuff. We had a lot of problems with the bill. Since then, it's been going through a lot of scrutiny in a Senate inquiry. That inquiry wasn't due to release its report until next year, but it sort of fast-tracked that process, I suppose, and uh, released its, uh, tabled its report on Monday in the Senate. Debate was brought on on Tuesday, and after extensive negotiations, Labor has secured the support of the Greens for the Nature Repair Bill. Steph, can you let us know what's happened here? Update us on the latest. What did, what did we get? What have we got? What's going on with the nature repair bill? Yeah, well, uh, I think a significant win. Like we're still always eyes on the prize of no new coal and gas, but uh, in exchange for so what we managed to do was get a water trigger um, included that we've been fighting for for I think ten years was the first time that we proposed uh, a water trigger that would apply to new coal and um, that would apply to shale gas and tight gas. Uh, at the moment, there, there's an existing water trigger in place that does um, apply to sort of the east coast of Australia and means that the minister must consider uh, implications on of water uh, security and the impact on aquifers in those states. But there was nothing uh, applying in Northern Territory and Western Australia. And so um, we managed to secure this water trigger, but we also managed to get rid of the um, the sham that are biodiversity offsets and, you know, um, the commodification of biodiversity, frankly, and, mm. um, yeah, Green Wall Street. And that that's pretty significant. Like it, 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 we just shouldn't have to have these battles in the first place, of course. Um, you know, basically uh, Tanya Plibersek, the Environment Minister, says, look, we want to protect biodiversity whilst we're still subsidising like coal and gas, um, but we don't have the money to do it. So where do we find the money? Let's turn it into a market. And uh, 
I think you know that we've we've seen the shortcomings of the climate of climate offsets and um, the shortfalls. I think in the biodiversity area are even more problematic. Um, so really, I think excellent that we managed to remove those those um, those offsets from legislation. But and similarly to get that water trigger incorporated um, in the legislation. But yeah, what did you make of it, Tom? Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, some of this hurts my head a little bit uh, mm-hmm. just because I'm not across all the details. But, you know, Sarah Hadley-Young is happy and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and I trust your expertise here. I mean, saying it's, it's a win. I mean, initially in the uh, negotiations, we were talking about things like a ban on native forest logging across the country. Mm-hmm. That's not there. And, of course, we've been talking a lot about a climate pollution trigger in environmental laws yeah. as well, the campaign, and the fight for that still continues. Sarah Hanson Young seemed to be saying that the expanded water trigger would be a huge hit on gas fracking corporations in places like the Beedaloo and the Kimberley. So is it, is it the Greens' hope that this change, this win here, could potentially endanger the Beedaloo, um, uh project and the, and the fracking that, that's planned to happen in the NT there? Yeah, like it could, but mm. the big caveat is still that it goes via the minister. So the minister doesn't have to make a decision, but the minister right. has to at least consider the impacts right. on aquifers Um in, in Beedaloo and in Western Australia. And, and so, you know, I, I don't have a lot of faith and confidence in that process. I'm not going to lie, but um, it is something we've fought for, 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 for 10 years. I think Labor said a decade ago that they would introduce this trigger. So I don't know why it's taken them as long as it has, um, but you, you, you bang on. We need to get the climate trigger in there as well. But mm. similarly, that comes back to the Environment Minister um, for with ministerial discretion to make that decision. So, yeah. It's it's a partial win and I think it's a step forward, absolutely, but um, what I would say is that we just can't take our eyes off the no new coal and gas, ending the fossil fuel subsidies that are continuing to drive the climate and biodiversity crises and, um, yeah, getting more Greens elected. Yeah. The offsets thing is definitely good, all right? This is a big critique yeah. when we were discussing this back in June, okay? Yeah. So the idea is that landholder would do nice things, would do some repairing of nature, would then get certificates. They could then sell those certificates to a massive company like Woodside and they could buy those certificates to offset their destruction of nature somewhere yeah. else. We always thought this yeah. was ludicrous. The environmental movement said this is ridiculous and bad and no good. And mm. so the fact that that is not happening is a very good thing. Yes. Now, the question still remains, if if not to offset, what is the incentive for people to buy these certificates? And why is it not simply easier to invest directly into the repair of nature? Why does this have to be put through a market process? You know, why do you have to neoliberalize goddamn everything? Surely the invest the direct investment to repair and preserve nature, both for nature's own sake, for the climate, for the environment, for tourism, is a very worthy goal and is absolutely within the remit of a government. I mean, this is our big critique back in June. I w- it seems to me that that argument would yeah. still stand. It's good that we can't have offsets anymore. Yeah. But I guess you, you're arguing like, okay, so what, what is the incentive now um, to have this yeah. kind of market-based approach to repairing nature? I don't know if that, is that any clearer to you or is it all still pretty cooked? It's just all too, you're just making it too simple, Tom, and too direct. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Sorry. It needs to be complicated. You've got to bring in some opaqueness and some, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. no, exactly. And not even just like, yeah, just protect the bloody forests that already exist. Like without going to the proactive side, you know, do both ideally. But mm. uh, yeah, look, I, Labor Party works in mysterious ways um, <laughs> and we'll keep pushing for that and um, I and, and enter the subsidies. Like it's just, yeah. Boggles the mind. I, I, 
it's just nonsensical like to say we don't have enough bloody money to fix these issues and to work on species decline and to work on habitat um, restoration yeah well millions yeah we do have that i mean again emerald cited mm. a paper um from i believe out of the melbourne university back in june we were talking about that you'd be looking at something about two billion a year in direct investment mm. to repair nature now that's Again, not a hell of a lot of money. Not a hell of a lot. In this grand scheme of the national budget with the uh, you know stage three tax cuts, mm. and we've got hundreds of billions of dollars to spend on submarines, yeah. but apparently we can't. Stage three tax cuts, yeah, yeah, exactly. Can, yeah. We help, but no, apparently we don't have enough cash. No. So we've got to arm it out to the private market. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no. Oh, grim. It's grim, but yeah. That's the message that I said. I can't show in Gaza continues. More than 18,600 deaths, including more than 7,000 children uh, at the latest count. Millions of Palestinians have been displaced. I think I saw something like 85% of the population of belief have been displaced within Gaza. More than 50,000 people injured. Israel is preventing aid getting through. Communicable diseases uh, continue to spreading as the health system collapse. Uh, again, if you're watching the news, you know how horrific it is over there. Mm-hmm. But there was this tiny glimmer of some kind of hope or or movement in the right direction. Uh, This week at the UN General Assembly, Australia joined 152 other nations in voting for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza and the immediate and unconditional release of all hostages. Canada and New Zealand also voted in favour of the motion. Just 10 nations voted against, including our wonderful ally, the United States of America, while 23 nations, including the UK, abstained, which was... Mm cowardly. The new UN vote follows Australia's decision in late October to abstain from casting an affirmative vote on a similar motion. People might remember this. At the time, the Albanese government said, oh, the language was incomplete. It didn't mention Hamas as the perpetrators of the 7th of October attack and didn't condemn them. Therefore, we couldn't possibly support it. This time around, Australia supported a US amendment to try and get the same condemnation of Hamas in this motion. They weren't successful, but Australia still did vote for it. I would argue that's evidence of the the, the extraordinary pro-Palestine movement from we've seen across civil society, the mobilizations in Australia and across the world seems to be having some kind of effect. The message is maybe coming through to the political class that people see what's happening in Gaza and they are dismayed and they want it to stop. Would you agree, Steph? Yeah, absolutely, Tom. And, you know, it's a shame that it has taken, what, 68 or 69 days and near 20,000 deaths for the Labor Party to reach this position on ceasefire. But, Mm. yeah, I'm encouraged that they've gotten there and it is because of people out weekend after weekend, night after night, um, sharing their dismay at what's unfolding and the the atrocities that are occurring in Gaza. And um, so it yeah, it's a, it's a step in the right direction, but we've got a long way to go. We need, obviously, we need a permanent and we need an um, immediate permanent ceasefire and that's mm. what we're continuing to call on the Labor Party to support. Um, need Release the hostage, hostages, but the bombs need to stop dropping. And um, it's I live in McNamara. We've got a really significant Jewish community here and mm. a number of my friends and friends um, uh, friends of friends are Jewish and are experiencing a lot of pain and anguish um, over recent months over what's occurring. And um, 
there, I think no one wants to see this ongoing bloodshed that we're seeing and these loss of civilian lives. And so any step towards peace is a step in the right direction. Mm. Leader of the Greens, Adam Bant, welcomed the vote as a sign of progress but said it came way too late and not enough. Uh, it shouldn't have mm-hmm. taken Labor nearly 20,000 deaths and 67 days to finally vote for an immediate ceasefire at the UN, he tweeted. To everyone who has rallied, called their MPs, organised and posted, you made this happen. Keep going. Mm-hmm. That was his message from the Leader of the Greens. Someone who was less than impressed is the Labor member for McNamara, Josh Burns, your mate. Um, mm. <laughs> he's currently on a parliamentary delegation to Israel. I'm not aware of the other MPs that are over there. I assume it's a cross-party delegation um, from folks, although I assume there's, there's probably no uh, Greens MPs on this particular <laughs> um, delegation, and I assume it is paid and paid for by the Israeli government. There's been a lot of critique over you know, these paid-for trips, particularly by members of the media to Israel over the recent years as to you know, why do they happen? Why do people accept them? What comes with those kind of conditions on those trips? Josh Burns is over at the moment. He refused to support his own government's voting for this motion. The backbench MP noted the Australian government had also voted in favour of a failed US amendment to specifically name and condemn Hamas. It's ludicrous to not include Hamas in this picture. You know, as much as I think that uh, the UN resolution really would have been strengthened by the United States amendment, uh, what's really important here is that there are meaningful steps towards uh, towards the end of this violence. And that can't happen without Hamas releasing hostages and it won't happen without Hamas uh, being removed from power. <sighs> Look, Patricia, I, I, honestly, <laughs> it couldn't be less relevant to the people here on the ground. And I just think that's a really disingenuous approach. So, oh, the US amendment to condemn Hamas, that was good and important. We should have voted for that. That would have been good. But generally, this whole motion doesn't mean anything, basically, because it's calling for an immediate ceasefire. Mm. I mean, yes, Josh Burns is, is Jewish himself. As you say, he represents McNamara. He's a very staunch defender of the state of Israel. His predecessor, Michael Danby, in the Melbourne ports had a similar position. And he's pretty, yes, pretty outspoken on this. I mean, what, what do you think about his, Josh Burns' response to that, that move by his own government to vote for mm. this motion at the UN General Assembly? but sort of basically saying, I don't endorse it, it doesn't matter, it's not relevant to what's happening here on the ground and and it misses the big picture of you know Hamas's actions and what happened on October 7th. Mm. Well, in order to say it's not relevant here on the ground, I think you need to be really um, cognizant of who's funded your trip and where you're mm. visiting to know how relevant it is on the ground. And um, from what I understand, the trip has been funded by um, AJAC, the Australian, Israel and Jewish Affairs Council. Right. And... If you want to do fact-finding, if you want to really get, I think, a balanced perspective of what is going on in the region, then you simply cannot go on a funded junket. Uh, frankly, uh, I think it's disingenuous to say it will make no impact on the ground. I don't I, I don't know if he's planning to visit. I don't think they're visiting Gaza and I, maybe they're visiting the West mm. Bank. I'm not sure. But um, I think that it really doesn't align with what I'm hearing from uh, members of the community that I'm part of that want an end to the violence and that are absolutely appalled at the ongoing violence that's occurring, the ongoing loss of civilian lives, the ongoing occupation. Um, so, look, I, it, it doesn't resonate with what I'm hearing and what I'm experiencing um, in my community. I did go on a self-funded trip to Israel and to Palestine and to the, yeah, the West Bank um, after the 2016 election mm. and I saw the illegal settlements being rolled out and I experienced it and I'd urge Josh, I'd urge anyone who, the media, the media that have been on, on these sponsored trips by Israel, 
to go and to visit in a self-funded capacity to see what is going on um, without the the PR machine that accompanies these trips. And um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a cop-out. We obviously need a permanent and immediate ceasefire. And, uh, and yeah, that includes releasing the hostages. It includes releasing the political prisoners and includes um, ending the occupation. Yeah. I mean, in Josh Burns' slight defence, he said he did not want to diminish the civilian loss of life in Gaza, which he labelled as devastating. Well, then maybe still call on the people who are doing it to stop doing it, maybe. He said he and fellow Australian MPs on this week's trip had been putting direct questions to our Israeli counterparts about protecting civilian lives and repressing for an increase in humanitarian access. And again, we, we hear this, like, oh, we're, we're placing this pressure, we've made these calls, but there's no follow-up. There's like, well, that's not working. We know it's not yeah. working because we have yeah. eyes and we have stats and we can see what's happening. Yeah. So when... I mean, I mean, when 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 do you say that that uh, Israel no longer gets carte blanche to keep doing this? And when do you admit that your um, efforts to try and secure protection of civilian life is not working, and the horror is continuing? Of course, it will never happen. I, rem- I remember seeing an ad that Josh Burns posted in local media. It must have been uh, well a, a year when there was particularly gruesome violence in in Gaza. There was some there was some kind of attack. Um, a lot of criticism of Israel and his immediate reaction is to post a photo with him and Kimberly Kitchen saying, we will stand by Israel forever, no matter what. I mean, it's just this, their, their support for this nation state and its actions are completely devoid from the reality and the impact of their actions. It is just, we support Israel, end of story, mm. uh, regardless of what Israel is currently yeah. doing or its role in, in, in furthering violence. It's, I don't know, it's pretty gross to see. Yeah, and look, Albanese should be on the phone every single day calling heads of state, calling diplomats, urging an end to the violence, urging a permanent and enduring ceasefire. Still, we're still exporting military arms to Israel. Like mm. that clearly needs to stop. If if we're serious about wanting um, a peace and if we're serious about wanting ceasefire, then it simply can't continue. And and I think that. Sentiment shifting, and we've seen that amongst um, some senior members of the Labor Party. But it's just got to shift more quickly, and it's got to be um, more forthright, I think. And and as I said, like in this largely Jewish community, people want to see an end to the bloodshed, and that's been my experience. And um, any decent person does. So it's yeah, it's a great tragedy, but um, we'll keep turning up to the protests keep churning up to the local Jewish-run events, mm. um, calling for ceasefire and calling for peace and calling for an end to the occupation. So there's organi- there's communities that are organising right across this electorate but obviously right across Australia and, um, yeah, I'll continue to support those those calls and those bringing together of um, different groups. Like my mother was a survivor of war and uh, mother-in-law, sorry, a survivor of war and um, fled Bosnia and uh, her whole thing is it's only when you start getting the groups coming together that you're going to get the peace. And so any efforts that we can to ensure that um, the protests that we're running have Jewish representation, have Palestinian representation, have First Nations representation, um, we need to be supporting and encouraging those um, sorts of peace initiatives. But similarly, matching it with the, I think, the diplomatic oomph that uh, Australia can and should carry on the international stage to show some leadership on this issue. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think particularly at this moment, this narrative that, of course, all Jewish people are uh, supportive of of Israel no matter what, are very pro-Israel, that is breaking down. We've seen lots of mm. incredible bravery from Jewish-led groups um, who oppose um, 
well, some of them are, are blatantly anti-Zionist, they, they oppose the state of Israel or they have a very strong critique of Israel's actions and they're sort of saying not now name, not as Jewish people will not now name mm-hmm. these actions can continue. Having mm-hmm. said that, as you mentioned, in McNamara there's a very large Jewish community. Overwhelmingly the majority of the Jewish diaspora community within Australia is quite supportive of Israel. I think that's fair enough and, and would be mm-hmm. uh, perhaps substantially more conservative than say, the Jewish um, population or communities we see in, in America that, that are often very mm-hmm. liberal and have been voted to the cent- voted centre-left overwhelmingly, you know, for a very long period of time. I, I'd just be interested to hear about your experience, Steph, in running in McNamara where, because of the presence of a Jewish community, issues around Israel-Palestine are really charged and salient to the point where there are forums as part of election mm-hmm. campaigns put on by organisations like the Zionist Federation of Australia in which the mm-hmm. candidates are really questioned about, you know, certain issues when it comes to, um, yeah, questions around Israel and anti-Semitism. Um, mm-hmm. What's been your experience being a candidate for the Greens in those elections and how have you sort of navigated those particularly charged and thorny issues? Yeah, well, look, first and foremost, within the Jewish community, there are many, many, many diverse opinions. And um, like most of my campaign team were progressive Jewish people. And uh, so I don't like to sort of categorise it too widely and stereotype. But, yeah, there were um, forums hosted, I think Zionism Victoria uh, hosted forums, and uh, I didn't participate in the first one. But then I realised that there were so many members of of our community, of our Jewish community, that were desperately wanting a voice outside of the major parties' voices on issues like refugees, on issues like climate justice, on economic justice. So uh, when I did participate in those events, I really discovered that um, a huge proportion of our community want and want to support the Greens and do support the Greens and um, that was an opportunity that, uh, you know, I'm glad that I partook in those events because um, they have a right to hear what the Greens stand for and um, we do stand for peace and nonviolence and we do stand for many weeks stamping out um, racism and anti-Semitism and that's another thing that's come through um, quite strongly as I've been campaigning locally is that this idea that um, the Libs, you know, for so long have not given two hoots about the safety of these communities and kind of trying to politicise anti-Semitism now um, when they haven't supported inquiries that the Greens have run into the rise of far-right hatred and Mm. bigotry. And so the Greens have really proudly stood alongside the Jewish community in trying to stamp out racism and anti-Semitism in this country. Uh, So it's uh, what I, I love about this area is that we do really encourage thoughtful and considered debate on a range of issues. I did, however, regularly say when I was running in McNamara that I'm not running in the Knesset, I'm running in Australia in mm. for the Australian Federal Parliament and so um, got limited influence over what happens uh, in the Middle East and um, obviously we need to be playing a leadership role um, globally when it comes to peace and um, harmony globally but um, ultimately it's the right we believe in the rights to, of Palestinians and um, Israelis to self-determination and um, we should support those processes towards peace and towards ending occupation and towards upholding international law um, but also recognise um, that we've got a lot of issues back here in Australia as well that we need to be dealing with and that we have um, increasingly right-wing Labor Party and Liberal Party that we need to confront. So uh, I've had, by and large, really respectful debate and dialogue um, with the Jewish community, with all communities uh, here in, in McNamara. But, of course, yeah, it's there are some 
people that probably won't vote for the Greens. <laughs> um, there are some pretty rough, <laughs> pretty on, rough what? door knocking. <laughs> yeah, funny that. Um, there are some pretty rough door knocking experiences that we have had in parts of the electorate, but um, we really, I think so much of what we're doing when we're door knocking is listening and um, trying to understand differences of perspectives and bring us somewhat closer to some common ground. And we've managed to do that. And I just can't, yeah, I suppose overemphasize how much I'm hearing that people want peace. They, they want the bombs to stop and they want civilian life to be preserved. And so um, I'm proud to be with the Greens and proud to be um, really pushing, pushing that alongside the, you know, millions of Australians who are just aghast at what's occurring and and um are rallying on the streets and are making phone calls and are sharing on social media and whatever it might be to um get have their voices heard and work towards a, you know a broader humanity mm. during those forums is the general was the general position that everyone sort of agrees on a two-state solution right i mean i mean it's very difficult now obviously there are, there is immediate um, horror is happening in Gaza right now where people's energies are focused on. So questions of one state, two state, or the future of this conflict are sort of, you know, somewhat um, theoretical mm-hmm. or at least aren't, aren't demanding people's immediate attention, I suppose. But certainly prior to October 7th, you know, debates around and questions around Israel-Palestine is about, okay, so what what is the position, two-state solution, which is the Greens' official position? Earlier this year, you know, there was a change of language, sort of saying that Israel's ongoing occupation is making the two-state solution impossible called out Israel for operating a system of apartheid in the occupied territories. So that that language was kind of hardened, a position written in collaboration with with Jewish Greens as well as, and as, well, as well as Jews of Palestine. But I suppose, yeah, are, are, the, are the, the folks who are attending those kind of forums, both the candidates and the people in the audience, all generally agreeing around a two-state solution? Do people recognise the fact that that is the Greens' official position? Is that a meaningful conversation that you can that you can have or is it is you know at its at its most extremes um uh, questions about a, a, a self-governing palestinian state is even that um too far for, for some folks who are particularly committed to the existence of israel and, and the political mm. ideology of zionism to be frank the forums didn't focus heavily on israel palestine and oh, okay. um they were they were broad reaching um discussions but look i Kate Ashmore, who was the last Liberal candidate, was she? Um, no, she was. No, it was Colleen. Anyway, Liberal parties were has been quite inconsistent in what they've demanded. They ended up getting on the front page of the Australian rather than me, which was um, which was nice after that second forum. Um, basically, Liberal candidate yeah. went in. Yeah, oh, that's it. Went in. Um, mm sort of arguing over who was more Jewish out of Josh and herself <laughs> and um, that didn't end well for her. Yes. But, look, yeah, the Greens policy now is that we, like, believe that Israel and Palestinian people need the right to determine their own government and mm. self-determine their government. And um, I I don't think that, like, I, for me that's not controversial like, and I don't know actually where the Labor Party or Josh Burns are up to. We are seeing some cracks between what the ALP and what Josh Burns support, so mm. I won't, I, I don't know what his current position is on this, um, but I would, um, I dare say it will come up at the next forum that's hosted in McNamara. But look, they were they were pretty civil discussions about this, and it was a different context. Then, obviously, the occupation, the illegal occupation, was happening, and we had the settlements um, unrolling, and they, they didn't speak about those issues at all. And I was really proud to be the only voice calling out um, those those um, international rights abuses that were happening or breaches of international law. But yeah, we we need to. This is why we need to run in these seats, and we need to provide strong representation because there are huge swathes of the Jewish 
community who are demanding uh, alternatives to the major parties and who aren't willing just to go along with maybe what they've been told to go along with by some of the highly right-wing um, Zionist organisations who are, for example, sponsoring the cross-party delegation to Israel right now. So yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm hopeful and optimistic that we could. That, no, that, well, well, yes, I'm glad that you, yes, you yeah. you, you made that decision and, and turned up because I, I'm sure that yeah. someone such as yourself speaking at a forum like that, being perfectly reasonable, saying what you believe uh, would dispel the caricature of the Greens party and Greens candidates. And, you know, I mean, we've been seeing that over the past couple of months, right? Just particularly from the um, conservative side of politics and, and right-wing politicians are sort of saying, mm-hmm. yeah, the Greens have no right to exist. They are, they are an anti-Semitic political party and their support for Palestinian human rights is them supporting terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. So countering mm-hmm. that narrative and showing up and mm-hmm. saying, no, this is what we believe. We think it's reasonable and right and just. And we want mm. to explain our position to you um, is, is a yeah. good thing. I mean, that's politics, right? That's actually how you that's win poli- that's hearts and minds. Exactly. And how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. And they, they they've seen that we've stood alongside them between elections to stamp out anti-Semitism and to stamp out hate speech. And they've seen like Samantha Ratnam has been extraordinary um, on this in the state parliament and trying to set up inquiries. So there's that level of consistency that I think has really come through that we're not just turning up at elections. We are doing the deep and important work that needs to happen right across from local to state to federal levels of parliament. We are working alongside the Jewish community and um, the the um, Muslim community, all, all sorts of communities to ensure that they can live in peace and free of bigotry and free of um, Islamophobia and uh, anti-Semitism. So, um, yeah, I'm not going to lie, it's pretty daunting getting up in those forums, um, but I know the track record that the Greens have got and I can certainly feel like leaning on, leaning in on those areas that we've led on and um, calling out the politicisation of anti-Semitism, which, again, many Jewish people do not want the seriousness of anti-Semitism to be undermined by um, falsities. Like mm-hmm. they they w- want to preserve the strength and definition of it and um, because it's not something that can just be bandied around. It's deeply, deeply dangerous. And so, yeah, I'm... I'm looking forward to getting back out there as a um, a senator and a me- member of the uh, McNamara community and Port Phillip community, and um, yeah, engaging more and listening and trying to understand how we can take go forward together um, and really work towards just and lasting peace. Mm. And that's the goal. Last question, mm. just on that. I mean, yes, I know mm. that you are committed to trying uh, to help the Greens win McNamara. I'm mm. sure you believe that it is possible. Obviously, you, you know mm. more than anyone else that it is possible. You came so, so close. Do you think that questions around Israel-Palestine and this conflict will be a major issue in the in the next election? And do the Greens need to think about their strategy as to how they, mm. they approach these kind of things, whoever happens to be the candidate for that lower house seat? Yeah, look, they consistently are questions that are asked from election to election, and I suspect it will be the same, but I absolutely do not believe that the Greens can or should change um, their approach in how we're tackling this, and that is decency and that is upholding of human rights and international law, and um, that's something that I think that whoever the next candidate for McNamara is can stand really strong knowing that we um, are a party that's been founded on peace and nonviolence and that we came out very early um, demanding a ceasefire and, and entered the occupation and um, for a release of the hostages. Obviously what happened on October 7th mm. was absolutely atrocious and we called that out as well and we'll continue to call out acts of violence international breaches of um uh, breaches of international law and uh that's 
not something that we'll compromise on, nor should we compromise on um, in any efforts on lower house seats. But we'd also will be focusing on some of the other areas that we know that we're really strong on, that we know that the community want and expect leadership on. And we've got a huge percentage proportion of renters in McNamara. We've got young people who are desperately worried about their, their safe climate future and, um, yeah, like paying the bills, whatever it might be. Um, Israel-Palestine will certainly be a part of that um, of that dialogue, but there'll be many, many other areas. And uh, I'm confident that uh, our policies and the work that we've been progressing will lead us in really good stead to um, give it an almighty crack at the next election. Great news. All right, now we have a major, major six news exclusive for you just moments ago. As you know, Cameron Dick and Stephen Miles. Stephen Miles to be the next Premier. Stephen Miles, he was walking just down the road here, uh, as you can see, just at the traffic lights, and we quickly stopped in to see if we could get a quick interview with him as he made his way to his offices in 1 William Street, a very happy man, uh, before he goes and gets sworn in a government house today. Here is that exclusive interview with the new Premier, the 40th Premier of Queensland, Stephen Miles. I think we'll pretty much leave it there. That's our show. Thank you so much for being my co-host, Steph Hodgins, mate. It's been a delight. Thank you, Tom Ballard. I'm going to try and get more funny by the next one. Maybe that's what I'm most scared about, <laughs> do a full 360. most scared about not being funny on Serious no, Danger, I heard. No, I'm supposed to be funny. If you're funny, then I'm... Yeah, true, I, true. I've got no Don't business being. <laughs> I learned that when I co-hosted an event with Mandy Nolan and the night of the event, it was about um, home truths. I was like, why on earth did I ask to do an event with a comedian that is just like ludicrous like stupid and scout boxer as well like ah! and anyway it was a really fun night and we really need to get mandy nolan elected too just gonna do that oh, little yeah, plug let's get her up. Oh, yes yes please. Yes. Um, call to action. You can always give money to the Greens. I, I don't want to put you in any awkward position, Steph, but based on the letters I'm receiving and the emails that are coming out, the Victorian Greens. Shaking the tin. Yes, yeah. shaking the tin. I know it's Christmas and people are doing very tough the cost of living crisis, but if you're one of those, those Richies, those double-barreled surname people who listen to this show and you have as a fair cash, you can always donate money to the Victorian Greens. We'll put a link through to that or the Australian Greens no matter where you are in the country. You can set up a regular donation, even something like $5 a month, obviously totally up to you, but that kind of stuff does support the party, help the party uh, operate and to keep fighting for all the stuff that we believe in. So that is an option, but if you're able to do that, that's also okay. Do Patreon um, first. I, I, we need to keep this podcast alive Patreon and is, is crucial. <laughs> Yes, that's where a lot of the Australian Greens money actually ends up. So um, we, <laughs> we redirect those funds and it's very illegal. And also, if you don't have money, you can also donate your time. People get in touch via your website, right, Steph, if they want to volunteer either for your, your re-election campaign or, you know, for generally getting involved in the kind of campaigns you're working on, right? Yeah, jump on socials. I don't think I've got a website yet. So, um, yeah, keeping me waiting. That's all right. I'm having a bit of a break over summer. I'll be back ready and firing in the new year. But, yeah, social, uh, Instagram, Facebook, um, that's where my website will be announced when there is one. (laughs) When it exists. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Steph. Appreciate it. Merry Christmas. You You too. Happy holidays. Yay. Yay. (laughs) Serious Danger, Australia.